Hi, this is Ben Zorns with Ellerslie Mission Society. This is part one of a two-part message given by Pastor Eric Ludy at the Church at Ellerslie in lovely Windsor, Colorado. It is our hope and prayer that this message would convict, inspire, and invigorate your pursuit of the Lord Jesus Christ. We also want you to know that should you ever have any questions or comments regarding any of the ministries here at Ellerslie, we are always happy to provide answers and receive feedback. Simply contact us at info at ellerslie.com or give us a call at 970-686-9022. We really would love to hear from you. Enjoy the message and may your faith and love in Jesus grow larger as you listen. Now here's Pastor Eric Ludy. Humility and chutzpah. Technically, uh, the Yiddish way is, has a little more chich to it. So humility and and chutzpah. I'm not, I just can't do it very well. But it has like that grovelly sound to it. Now, uh, if you're a Jew, you probably spell it with a CH in the front to give it the, the real look of the uh, Yiddish or Hebrew word, because it does come from the Hebrew. Uh, and so for those of you that don't know what chutzpah is, it's all right. I'll explain it to you as we go along, but it is a fun word. And uh, it's funny because a lot of us think we know what humility is, but we need to understand the humility of God to truly understand humility. Sort of like we know what love is. We have love songs. Uh, and yet, do we really know what love is until we know the God of love? And so when you rec- begin to recognize that God's rendition of love is very different than the world's variety, well, God's rendition of humility is very different than the world's variety too. And it's an amazing thought. Just think about this from the very beginning. God is humble. I, I don't know if you've ever allowed that to sink in. It's not just that he commands us to be humble before him, who's all majesty, all perfection, all righteousness, all blazing holiness. He is humble. Has he not proven that to us in the way he even came to this earth? Has he not proven that to us in the way he washed our feet and took the lowest place? Hasn't he proven that to us? Yet he has set an example that we would follow. And yet you try and follow that example in your own strength, you will fail. You need something. You need the humility and chutzpah of the Holy Spirit in order to do it. So this is a study of the Holy Spirit. Look at this, a two-part series. An introduction, so this is how I get my third part in. <laughs> the man in the water, a picture of the distinct and essential work of the Holy Spirit. Don't worry, it's, it's short. When I was, it was back in 1982, my dad came home from work and shared a story with me of a plane uh, that had crashed into the Potomac River. And some of you may remember it. It may date you just by remembering it. But uh, you remember this. And my dad told me the story of this man that no one knew that had actually survived the crash. Out of 74 passengers, only, uh, it was around 70 even, I'm sorry, even only around four actually survived. So most of them died at impact. But there were actually some that were actually floating in the water and escaped the plane. But it was frigid, icy waters and hypothermia was setting in, and a helicopter came down uh, to rescue. These two men risked their lives. Uh, one was a pilot, one was a paramedic, and they, they came down to the waters, and at one point in time almost went into the water themselves. They risked their lives to rescue these uh, people, but the, the, the rescue line or the, the lifeline was actually originally given to this one man, but he passed it off to the others, and he continually helped everyone else get in, and when all was said and done, he died. He died giving up his life to the others. No one even knew his name. He was simply known as the man in the water. 
January 13, 1982, Air Florida Flight 90 crashes into the Potomac River. There were three rescuers. Now, I'm giving you a picture here. It's just a very unique picture. You have three rescuers. You know that we were rescued by Jesus Christ, but technically we were rescued by the three. The Father so loved us that he gave his Son, that whosoever would believe in him would not perish but have everlasting life. But who does the work? Who takes of that work of the Son and brought it to you? You see, he's part of the salvation. It's the Holy Spirit. And yet he's oftentimes the one forgotten. The Father so loved that he gives. Yet who's the one pushing you up into the helicopter? Who's the one pushing you into the arms of grace? He's the forgotten one. He's what we could call the man in the water. Donald W. Usher. You see, you have his name. He's the pilot. We know his name. He's an amazing man, considered a hero. Melvin E. Gene Windsor. I like his last name. He's the paramedic. This is really interesting just to think about the father, the son, the healer, the paramedic, the one that reaches out and was literally bringing them in. One's flying the helicopter, the one's reaching in. And then we have a third man. He's the man in the water. He's the push. So we have the pilot, the paramedic, and the push. No one knows this guy's name. You know, what's, what's interesting, I wish I could say that no one ever found out his name because that would make for this extra great story. However, people did eventually find out his name. It was revealed after time. But I like the fact that for a whole length of time, it just hung in the air that there was a man who laid down his life to push others into that helicopter. Three rescuers, two we know their name. Yahweh, we actually know his proper name. God the Father, his name is Yahweh. We know the Son. His name is Yahweh saves. We know it as Jesus, Yeshua, Isus, Jesus, depending on which language you're speaking. And then we have one who is the push. I wanted to say the pusher, but that didn't sound good. He's the push. He's the one that's in the water. All you see is two arms. All you see is the two arms. Who, who is it? I, I don't know. I, I know he's a person. I, I, I know he's there, but I don't know who he is. I don't even know his name. You know the Holy Spirit is not a name? That's a description. It's like saying the man in the water, the hidden hero. That's what the Holy Spirit is. That's like the name. We have the Father, the Son, and the hidden hero. What it said is his heroism was not rash. Aware that his own strength was fading, he deliberately handed hope to someone else, and he did so repeatedly. The Washington Post described him without a name, but merely as a hero. Time Magazine described him simply as the man in the water. Isn't that an amazing thought? Other options, the unknown soldier, the two arms that push, the guy that helped me into the helicopter. How did you get to Jesus? I don't know how I got here. How did you awaken? I I can't describe it. You see, there was someone who pushed you, someone who basically took the lowest position, got under you, and pushed. And he doesn't seem to care if you know his name. That's what's amazing about the one we're going to study today is he does not want to be the center, which makes it all the more difficult to make him the center of a, of a message. Because if he's truly going to anoint this message, he is going to bring the attentions to someone else other than him. So how do you talk about him? So he still needs to be known. We still need to understand that there is a man in the water. There's nothing wrong with understanding that. However, he says, look, my job is to merely get you into that helicopter. Okay, go fly. You see, he is laboring to lead us to Jesus. Who does Jesus labor to lead us to? The Father. You see, they work 
in a form, in a, a triad of humility that is so inexpressible when you see it. The term in Scripture that Jesus gives us when he says, I'm going to go to be the Father, and I'm going to send you someone. It calls it different translations, a helper, a comforter. The term in the Greek is the parakletos which means the advocate or the intercessor. So Jesus is saying, it's actually better for you that I go to be with the Father. Because unless I go to be with the Father, then you will not have this advocate, this intercessor, the rescuer, the helper, the counselor, the comfort bringer, the hidden hero. And I've added these in. The man in the water, the unknown soldier, the two arms that push, the guy that helped me into the helicopter, or the guy that helps you into the helicopter. He's the Holy Spirit. Yeah, he's, he's that one that helps you into the helicopter. John 14. So Jesus is, in this famous passage, describing the fact that he's going. And everyone's concerned. It's like, whoa, where are you going? Uh, how, how do we know where you're going? Uh, hey! And then this is when he brings in the, the theme of the one we know as the Holy Spirit. If you had known me, says Jesus, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you know him and have seen him. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it is sufficient for us. Jesus said to him, have I been with you so long, and yet you have not known me? Philip, he who has seen me has seen the Father. So how can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father, and the Father in me? What an interesting question to ask. Do you not believe that Jesus is in the Father, and the Father is in Jesus? You see, the two are one. And yet, we need to be introduced to another person in this great medley. The words that I speak to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does the works. So Jesus is saying that the Father dwells in him. And, well, that's an interesting thought, so just hold on to that for a second. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father in me, or else believe me for the sake of the works themselves. Most assuredly, I say to you, he who believes in me, the works that I do, he will do also. And greater works than these will, he will do, because I go to my Father." And whatever you ask in my name, that I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask anything in my name, I will do it. If you love me, keep my commandments, and I will pray the Father, and he will give you another parakletos. He will give you another helper. You see, Jesus is a helper. The Father is a helper. But when I go to be with the Father, I will send you another. You see, there's three there's three rescuers. There's three helpers. I will pray the Father and he will give you another parakletos that he may abide with you forever. Now he gives us the name, the spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. He's like the man in the water. You can't see him. Who was it that saved you? I, I don't know. How did you awaken to the fact that you needed a rescuer? How did you see the helicopter in the first place? Weren't you suffering from hypothermia? You couldn't even reach out your arms. This man in the water stuck the lifeline around you and pushed you out. Who was it? I, I, I don't know. I, I, I didn't see him. I, I don't know who it was. But you will know him, for he dwells with you, listen to this, and will be in you. Who did Jesus say was in him? It says the Father was in him. And then Jesus is saying the Holy Spirit will be in you. I will, I will not leave you orphans. I will come to you a little while longer and the world will see me no more, but you will see me. Because I live, you will live also. At that day you will know that I am in the Father and you in me and I in you. Whoa, 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 whoa wait a minute. 
who is supposed to live inside of us? It was the spirit of truth. He will be in you. See, I made it all big for you up there. But then what does Jesus say down here? I am in the Father, and you in me, and I in you. Well, what's he doing in us? I thought the Spirit was going to be in us. Well, you know who was in Jesus? The Holy Spirit. Well, I thought it was the Father that was in Jesus. You see, the Holy Spirit comes in the name of the Father and reveals himself through the Son. And when you see Jesus, who do you see? You see the Father. And then he comes and dwells in us in the name of Jesus. Who is it that lives in us? According to Colossians, it's Christ in us, the hope of glory. Well, I thought it was the Holy Spirit in us. The Holy Spirit comes in the name of Christ and reveals the Son in and through us. He's the hidden helper. He comes in the name of the Father. He comes in the name of Jesus. And he does the revealing. He's the one showing us. He's not seen. He's in the water pushing that we might see the Son and as a result see the Father. These things I have spoken to you while being present with you. But the parakletos, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send, listen to this, in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all things that I said to you. So there's our introduction. It says, the Holy Spirit will come in the name of Jesus and he will teach us all things and bring to our remembrance all things that Jesus said to us. Session number one. The humble servants, like water to the lowest place. So, when we did a, a message called the East End, we talked about the principle of water. The, even the term humility is basically the, the, the bottom of the bed of a river, and it's where the water goes, and that's the humble spot. And so it's the low spot, and when water runs, it always goes into that low spot. When the Holy Spirit is likened into a river, he's likened into a fountain, He's likened unto water. And so as a result, where does the water go? Well, the water will always go to the lowest spot. The river of life is actually a picture of the Holy Spirit. And it bursts forth from beneath the throne of God and goes into all the land of Israel. And it actually goes to the lowest spot, even to the Dead Sea. And it teems with life. And so what we have is a picture of the Holy Spirit as water. But the principle of water is like water, it goes to the lowest place. So we are talking about the Holy Spirit, God, who is willing to go to the lowest place to bring us life. Taking out an ad for the ultimate servant. Some of you are going to recognize this because I've taken a few of the different messages on the Holy Spirit and we've put them together into this one. This is from a message called The Old Servant. Looking for an old servant to run the Barclay estate in the master's absence. This is an ad in the paper. The sort of servant that is wise, gray-headed, knows everything and will stick strictly to the Barclay book of proper manners and all household operations in managing and governing the property. Must have at least 70 years' experience, must be absolutely trustworthy, willing to work 24 hours a day, seven days a week, without ever taking a vacation, and without a single complaint. Must never vie for control or try and lure the other household servants to an agenda outside the owner's clear prerogative. Must be willing to die to preserve the owner's reputation and the safety of the other members of the household. Must accept the unlimited access to, access to all the benefits of the Barclay estate and a deep familial bond with the Barclay family is his sole wage. Must be willing to forsake his own name and be known exclusively as Barclay's steward from the first day and ever onward. So let, let me ask a few questions. If you looked at that ad in the paper, basically there's an estate and they're looking for a servant that is otherworldly. I mean, come on, this guy is going to give up his own reputation. He's going to give up his own identity and become known only as Barclay's steward. He, his name will be forgotten. He won't even be known personally. 
and he will do only that which the owner of the estate tells him to do? Well, who's going to give up their life to do that? And yet, I'm setting you up to understand the Holy Spirit. And when I teach you the Holy Spirit, guess what you're going to understand? You heed the Holy Spirit. What he does in the Trinity, what he does in the Godhead is what you are to do. It is your role. It is to lose your identity and to do only that which the master of the state commands. You actually do that which the Spirit does and you will bring glory to Jesus Christ. So the Holy Spirit, we'll call him the old servant that labors daily as Jehovah's steward. So we have the Father, the Son, and we have the servant, the old servant. We have Jehovah's steward. So what's his name? Well, we actually don't know his name. Because you could say, well, his name's the Holy Spirit. Yeah, but the Holy Spirit isn't really a name. It is a description of what he is. So neo, the word spirit comes from the, the verb uh, in the Hebrew, neo. Uh, actually, this is in the Greek. It means to blow, to breathe, to move as wind. And then we have pneuma, uh, which is uh, a movement of air. So this is literally what God is describing him as. Oh, and the movement of air will come. What? The breath of the nostrils, the breath of God's nostrils will come, and it's a holy breath, by the way. It's the holy pneuma. The holy breath of God's nostrils will come. The vital principle by which the body is animated. It is that which is unseen. So you have the spirit and you have the body. If you remove the spirit, you have a dead body. And so the spirit is the life or the breath within it that causes it to be even deemed alive. And that's the way the spiritual life works. You are dead unless you have the pneuma. You have no life in you unless you have the pneuma of God. So pneuma, that which is working but no one sees. That servant that runs the house but stays hidden behind the scenes. You ever seen one of those butlers that they're not supposed to be seen and noticed? You ring a bell for them and they come running in, but the house is always clean. You go, you walk in, you're not expecting when you walk into an estate that has a butler to expect trash lingering in the entryway. You know that that will be picked up. However, you never see him do the work. He is silent and hidden in his work of maintaining the estate. And the estate is known simply by the name of the master. However, it's actually the butler that does most of the work to maintain it. And so the pneuma is that which is working but no one sees. The servant that runs the house but stays hidden behind the scenes. That vital person by which the body is animated. You know that a spirit cannot do its work without a body? If you just have a spirit floating around, what's it looking for? It's looking for hands and feet and eyes and mouths. It needs something to actually reveal through. And so the Holy Spirit needs a body. And we are called the body of Christ. It's the body that is the house or the temple for the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit needs a body. A body needs a spirit. The siege on the Holy Spirit. How he is known by many in the church today. Uh, the reason this is a challenging topic to address is because of the abuses of the Holy Spirit in our day and age. It has become a very twisted and perverted idea, which ironically, there are two contrary ideas in Scripture. You have flesh and you have spirit. And the two are at enmity one with the other. They do not coexist. They are not like each other. And yet, what is the great irony is in the church today, we've had people functioning in what is called the Holy Spirit in the flesh. This ought not to be, if Paul was going to say something about it. This ought not to be. How could that, 
which is supposed to be revealing the glory of King Jesus, which must be pure-hearted, which must be of his very nature, how could it be clouded with flesh? And so we have various people that wield all sorts of odd and unusual things in the name of the Holy Spirit. We have churches that are built completely around the Holy Spirit to talk about the Holy Spirit, when in actuality, if the Holy Spirit is present, who are you going to hear about? You're going to hear about Jesus. The Holy Spirit is laboring in the water to push up our understanding to comprehend Jesus and his cross. That's what it labors to do. It takes from the word of God, which is Jesus, and brings it to us to introduce us to a greater understanding of Jesus. So if the Holy Spirit is present, you're going to see it in certain facets. You're going to see conviction of sin. You're going to see repentance, and you're going to see a high view of Jesus Christ. When the Holy Spirit is present in his church, those are some of the attributes. However, when you begin to see people barking like dogs, roaring like lions, slithering like snakes, something has gone awry. When the Holy Spirit, which dignifies the saints of God and brings us and builds us to reveal the nature of the dear Son, not animals. The Holy Spirit does not fill the body of Christ to reveal animals. It reveals Jesus. And so there's been a twisting that has taken place, and we just happen to live in a generation in which it is very difficult to know how to deal with the Holy Spirit, because is that the Holy Spirit? I mean, I don't want to criticize it. If that's what God's doing, I want to submit to it. How do we test the Spirit according to the Word of God? Because the Holy Spirit only takes from the Word of God. He will never violate it. So if anything ever goes off the reservation from the Word of God, you can test it and say, well, that's not the Holy Spirit. Because the Holy Spirit is in perfect agreement with the Word of God. So the strange and the bizarre, the despised and rejected, the twisted and abused. Welcome to the life of the Holy Spirit. He is laboring to push people up to Jesus, willing to be unknown, and yet now most Christians are completely scared of him. All he's doing is attempting to labor to push you towards Jesus Christ. He's willing to take the low place in order to do it, and yet his name has become a foul word in Christianity today. Amongst many of the conservative side, it's very difficult to even talk about the Holy Spirit. It's very difficult to even acknowledge it and to teach on it. And so we have to skip entire passages of Scripture and act like they didn't take place, or that somehow the Holy Spirit's day and age has passed, and now we're back to only human effort to live out Christianity. You remove the Holy Spirit, you don't have Christianity. It's a dead body. The only thing that brings us to life is the pneuma. God has made a way for us to live, and we cannot push it away. It is very important and absolutely critical that we have a healthy relationship with the Holy Spirit. The nature of the Holy Spirit's operation, to work silently, to remain hidden, to take the lowest seat at the table of the Godhead, and as a result, to be oft overlooked and oft underappreciated. Now, for those of you that are defensive for the Holy Spirit, don't you, you know, you look at that list and you're like, whoa, whoa, wait a minute. To work silently, he is willing to work in such a way where he does all of his work in the name of Jesus. And as a result, who gets the praise? Jesus. And yet, who is doing the work in his name? The Holy Spirit. This is the Holy Spirit's chosen position. This is what he does. Out of his own will, he does it. Out of his own joy and delight, he does it. To remain hidden. The Holy Spirit says, look, if you truly want me to work in your midst, do not make me the focal point. If you 
allow me to move in your midst, I will reveal Jesus, who will reveal the Father. The way you will see God and understand God is by not making the Holy Spirit the primary focal point, but we still cherish and worship who he is. He's God. However, we allow him to do his work the way he is called to do it. The overlooked and underappreciated one. Some of us really feel bad for the Holy Spirit because he's not talked about as much as he should. Now, granted, there are churches that completely ignore the Holy Spirit, dismiss the Holy Spirit, and as a result, the Holy Spirit is not even welcome in their midst, and as a result, you have a dead church. You ever heard of the frozen chosen? Mm -hmm, That's where the term would come from. Then you have others that build the entire church around the Holy Spirit to exalt the Holy Spirit in a way that actually distorts what he intends to do. And so as a result, he can't accompany the work. He can't endorse it and he can't help it. So he retracts and everything begins to be done in flesh and in emotion as opposed to by the power of the Holy Spirit. And so we have a twisting, yet it's called the Holy Spirit. So, but don't attempt to fix the fact that he's overlooked and underappreciated by drawing the spotlight to him. The spirit you are attempting to make a celebrity would be quenched by the very act of attempting to put him at the center stage. It is his delight to labor behind the scenes. It is his joy to serve the Godhead in the way he does. His work is in perfect agreement with his nature. It is right for him to serve the glory of the Son and the Father in this fashion. Just because you want the spotlight on you, don't for a moment think the one known as the Holy Spirit is like you. In fact, he is altogether unlike you. Do you know what the word holy means? The Spirit who is not like you. That who, that's the one who is coming to dwell in our midst. So we're saying, no, he needs to get the, the center stage. He needs to be treated this way. And he says, buddy, I'm not like you. I have come to serve something other than me. Jesus came to serve the glory of the Father. Just because you want the spotlight on you, don't for a moment think the one knows the Holy Spirit is like you. In fact, he is altogether unlike you, which is why his work is so necessary. The work of the old servant. So the old servant has a job, and his job is to maintain the estate known as you, or the estate known as us, the church of Jesus Christ. So the old servant has a job, and that's to see that you adore his master and cherish every facet of his person as he does. The Holy Spirit, in a sense, has allowed his ear to be pierced by the Son of God, by the King of Kings, to say, whatever your word says, I will do, I will carry it out. And he actually has the power in which to carry it out. Why? He's God. He's an equal with God who is literally humbling himself to serve God. It's quite amazing. And so what is he doing? He is, his delight is to see that you adore his master. That's where he gets his joy. Do you see Jesus? When he sees us worshiping the Christ, when he sees us seeing the cross, when he sees us appropriating and believing in faith, that's his delight to cherish every facet of his person as he does. This isn't an amazing thought to think of the Holy Spirit cherishing every facet of Jesus Christ and the Father. Cherishing it. Worshiping it, saying that is good, that is right. To ensure that you learn to wait upon his every word and treat his every utterance as precious as he does. You see, the Holy Spirit has a desire and that is that you would know that he is bearing witness to you of the authenticity and the authority of the word of God. In text and in person. And so what his desire is, is to ensure that you would learn to wait upon his every word. 
That you would learn to wait upon the every word of the Spirit. Why? Because every word of the Spirit is going to only illuminate every word of Jesus Christ. And treat his every utterance as precious, just as he does. And to make certain that your life is wholly lost in the pursuit of his glory, Jesus' glory and fame, as his is. The work of the old servant, to make you as he is, a love-driven bondservant of the Father's household. So when the Holy Spirit moves into your life, he is going to bring a different sort of living to bear upon you. He is going to convict you of where you are not like he is. For he is a love-driven servant of the Father's household. And he is not wanting to be seen. He's willing to be unseen. He's willing to push those around him, though he gets no acclaim and no fame for it. And he says, this is the model. This is what I'm going to train you in. And you have to admit, he's as good as they get at teaching it. This is what he does. He's not doing the opposite and then teaching you to be opposite of him. He wants to train you to do exactly as he does. Do you see this? I'm willing to, dis- to diminish right now so that Jesus would be seen. In every situation, he's always pointing to the son. So the great love story of Isaac. What in the world does that have to do with the Holy Spirit? Oh, it's exciting. So we, in the great love story of Isaac, we could give it a different name. There is a character in the great love story of Isaac that you're not necessarily supposed to notice. However, for the sake of this message, I'm going to point him out. But after I point him out, I think you're going to realize why he's not supposed to be the focal point of the story and why Abraham and Isaac and Rebekah the wife are actually the key points of the story. We could call this story the story of the old servant's extraordinary work. And some of you could even say, okay, now I know the love story of Isaac, but the old servant's extraordinary work, who's that? You see, there's another character in that story, and do you know that his name is never mentioned? In the entire story, and yet he's actually what we could call the main character, and yet he's not the main character. He's not what the story is about. And so God is showing us a pattern of how the servant works. Introducing our cast, the father, Abraham, the convinced. So we're going to use this idea of the convinced, and I'll I'll build on this as I go, but Abraham is absolutely convinced. That is actually one of the things that is even referred to in Abraham's life. He did not waver in his belief. He was convinced. He knew the faithfulness of his God. He knew that when God spoke, he was faithful to do that which he promised. So Abraham is the convinced. The son, Isaac, is the dependent. The old servant, he's a character in this story. He's the unknown helper, or what we could call the convincer. In Christian history, it was often noted that the Holy Spirit was defined not as the one who brought conviction, but convincing. Conviction and convincing in the English language have sort of traded places over time. The Holy Spirit convicts. That's definitely a truth. But how does he convict? By convincing you that you're wrong. This is right. What you are doing is wrong. The Holy Spirit convinces. Isn't that an amazing thought? He convinces of a lot of different things. As we will go through this, you'll begin to realize, wait a minute, how did you come to a position of faith? Well, there's a convincer working on you. He says, do you see the merit of it? Do you see why it's trustworthy? Who's the one convincing you? It's actually an old servant who you don't even know is working upon you. He's not saying, and by the way, my name is uh, George. You know, he's not trying to get any attention to himself. 
He is constantly focusing on something to believe in. The subject and the object of your faith is Jesus and what he did on that cross. And yet there is one laboring who is silent. You don't even know his name and oftentimes we don't even know that he was working on us. So the old servant, the unknown helper, the convincer. And then we have the bride. This is technically us. I know for all of us guys, you're like, excuse me, bride? And guess what? We are the wooed. You guys like that? Especially the men in here. Don't you love being the wooed? I don't know exactly a better word for it. But we are being, in a sense, romantically wooed. We are being drawn. How? Well, there is someone working on us that keeps talking up the beauty and the majesty of the one we're going to marry. And he keeps referring to him. Have you seen him? Have you seen how truly handsome Isaac is? There is someone who is constantly feeding a notion of a higher idea of God. That we would see it, that we would behold it, and that we would fall in love with our bridegroom. You see, she is the wooed, but who is wooing her? Isaac in the love story isn't even there. Who's wooing? Is, the guy's name is simply the old servant. That's what he is. He doesn't even have a name. Genesis 24. Now Abraham was old, well advanced in age, and the Lord had blessed Abraham in all things. So Abraham said to the oldest servant of his house, who ruled over all that he had, Please put your hand under my thigh, and I will make you swear by the Lord, the God of heaven and the God of earth. So even though we don't usually stick hands under thighs, it's a symbol of covenant and of promise. That you will not take a wife for my son from the daughters of the Canaanites among whom I dwell, but you shall go to my country and to my family and to take a wife for my son Isaac. Go to my land, not to this land, and go and from my brethren find a wife of the heritage of me. You see, the father is looking for a bride for his son. Do you understand that this is a picture of the gospel right here? Abraham is the father. And he has something in mind for his son. He loves his son. It's an incredible thought that he is seeking a wife. And so who does he call on to bring that wife? But an old servant that old servant is entrusted with everything in his house. He has all the resources of Abraham and Isaac. Everything that Abraham has is his, and everything that Isaac has is his. Huh, that's a pretty powerful servant. Uh-huh. And he is sent out in the name of the Father and the name of the Son to go retrieve a bride for Isaac. So the assignment Go, my dear old servant, into a land you haven't seen for many years. And I know that's, that's saying something. The old servant, I'm going to tell you that I know who it is. Okay? We're going to go back in time and, and figure out a few details about this old servant, which are very interesting. But he's been to this land before, but it's been a long, long time. So go into this land you haven't seen for many years and retrieve for my son his bride. Woo her, convince her, call her, and bring her home. This isn't that easy of a job, by the way. Would you come and leave everything? Leave all the comforts of your homeland, come to a land you've never been, never seen, and marry a man you don't know. How are you going to do that? Well, you need a good convincer. And it's, his name is the old servant. Impart to her a clear picture of my son's virtue, that she may love him, serve him, and cherish his every facet of strength as you, do your, as you yourself do. Train her to treat him in the same manner you treat him. 
Do this, my dear old servant, and my joy and my son's joy will be full. Taking a necessary detour in our story. Introducing the great convincer, the Holy Spirit. The action and the effect of the Holy Spirit. Now these are two words to show you what the Holy Spirit does. They're big words and they're very hard words to pronounce. Pleirophoreo is a verb. And pleirophoreia is a noun. You're like, great. Those are big words and very hard ones to say. However, what they mean is, it's really good. Or another way of saying it is, he, the Holy Spirit, pleirophoreos in order to pleirophoreia. Does that help? I thought so. All right, so pleirophoreo. It's the verb, the action. This is the movement of the Holy Spirit. This is what he does. When the Holy Spirit starts doing his work, he pleirophoreos. So it means to bring completely to an end without stopping short but completing a long journey. So if I was headed out on a long journey from here to L.A., well, if I stopped in uh, somewhere in Utah and didn't finish the journey, I wouldn't have pleirophoreoed. In other words, when the Holy Spirit sets out, he always brings to a completion. He pleirophoreos. When you know this about the Holy Spirit, it gives you a whole new life in your faith. To realize that if he has begun a good work in you, he pleirophoreos. He will bring it to completion. It's just what he does. It also means to fully show something without any remaining hindrance to sight. So if I opened these curtains and you saw a gap of, of light just burst through, because that's what would happen if I opened these curtains. There's a lot of sunlight out there, and it would pff, burst through. I could say, do you see the light? Yes. Do you see fully what is behind those curtains? No. You see, the Holy Spirit is the one that actually opens the curtains in our life. It's called the glory of God that he reveals. He is the one that pulls the curtains, and he will pull it all the way until you fully see, and it's fully revealed to your soul. And so he's not done. You see, he is continually laboring to reveal Jesus Christ and the work of Christ and the work of that cross, the kingship of Jesus Christ in this natural realm. He is laboring, and he will complete his work. And it also means to fully convince someone, to make one certain, to persuade one to a right conclusion. So if you're talking with someone, they're like, I don't know if that's true. You see, pleirophoreo means to bring someone, to labor in their soul until they say, I believe it. And it cannot be argued out of them. It cannot be beat out of them. They believe it. They're convinced. This is a fact. You see, there are certain things in my life that I just know is a fact. You know, it's sort of like the statement of, my, like my nose on my face, I know it's there. You know, I can sort of see it. Have you ever tried to look at your nose? When you're, it's like it's there. So if someone said, you don't have a nose, I guess, yes, I do have a nose. I can even feel it. I have a nose, okay? The same way you're convinced of your nose, which might not have been the best illustration because it probably could have said your hand, which would be a little easier to discern. But the same way that you're convinced of the nose on your face, you are convinced of the work of Jesus Christ on your behalf to rescue you. And it's called faith. Faith is born by the convincing work of the Holy Spirit, bringing from the Word of God, the testimony of the Word of God, the work of the Word of God made flesh on that cross, and bringing it home to you and saying, believe. Do you see it? You say, I see it. Almost as if you were there 2,000 years ago. I see it. That was for me. That's right. You've been convinced by who? The Holy Spirit. And Abraham being fully persuaded, what do you think that means? That's the concept of pleirophoria. Absolutely convinced, wholly certain that what he had promised, 
he was able also to perform. So here's pleroferia, the noun. Full assurance, most certain confidence, absolutely convinced, completely persuaded. See, this is different than the way most of us live our Christian life. Most of us are somewhat convinced. And that's how we live our Christian life. That's not what the Holy Spirit does. When the Holy Spirit works in your life, you are absolutely without question convinced you know the truth. Well, how do you know the truth? Well, the Holy Spirit has revealed it to you. Now stand convinced in it. It's okay to be convinced. That's the way all the great men and women of God throughout the ages have been. Absolute assurance. It's called full assurance. Pleroferia. For our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and in much assurance. In pleroferia. In complete and utter confidence. You know that it's true. The gospel has come to us in the power of the Holy Spirit to convince us so that we stand not on sand, but on rock. And we will not be moved from our position. So back to the story, sort of. And the Lord God said, it is not good that man should be alone. Oh, we got another love story here. I'm sticking in love stories all over the place. Sort of a gushy message with the words like wooed in it. And the Lord God said, it is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helpmeet for him. So we're talking about Adam here. And Adam's alone. And it's not good that he's alone. So God's going to make a helpmeet for him. It's a really awkward word, this word helpmeet. And Adam gave names to all cattle and to the fowl of the air and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helpmeet for him. Now I'm going to swap out the word helpmeet with the Hebrew word, which is azer. Okay, it looks like Ezer or Ezer, but it's actually pronounced Azer. And the Lord God said, it is not good that man should be alone. I will make him an Azer for him. Doesn't that actually sound more preferable than helpmeet? Helpmeet is one awkward word. I don't know, there's just something weird about it. Azer, God's making an Azer for him. And Adam gave names to all cattle and to the fowl of the air and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found an Azer for him. So technically, an Azer is a wife. If you want to look at it that way, that's what it is. So this word is going to be very, very important. Azer. It's a masculine noun. Isn't that one of the great ironies of the Hebrew language? God's looking for a perfect match for Adam, and he finds an azer, which is a masculine noun. What? This is talking about something bigger than a spouse. This is talking about a helper that will come alongside the Adam. And so when you see this, you'll begin to recognize, what does the Holy Spirit train us in? His work. The work of the helpmate, the work of the helper. So Azer means a helper, one who helps, one who gives up their strength in order to supply strength to another. This is what God was looking for for Adam. He's looking for one who would be a helper, one who helps, one who gives up their strength in order to supply strength to another. Do you know that the church of Jesus Christ, the bride of Christ, is meant to be described by this noun? This should be the description of how we function. We have been trained by the Azer, the Holy Spirit, to do exactly this, to be a helper. You know what Jesus even refers to the Holy Spirit as in the New Testament? The Azer, the helper. That's what he refers to him as. One who helps, one who gives up their strength in order to supply strength to another. So just remember the man in the water. When you're going to describe the work of the Holy Spirit, it's the one that's literally under the water, pushing up. All you see are the arms. You want to thank him, but... He immediately goes back onto the surface, and you're like, who was that masked man? Who was that? It's the work of the Holy Spirit. The Azer, we could call him the unknown soldier. 
One willing to expend their own life lifting someone out of the waters into the helicopter, drowning without anyone ever having a name to associate with your noble act, then floating to the bottom of the river and never having your body, never having your body found. Forever being known as the unknown soldier, the true Ezer, Ezer is one convinced that this sacrificial pattern is the highest form of employment, the noblest form of living, and the greatest expenditure of life. Now let's recalculate or reformat our thinking. For many of us, that sounds depressing. To die in such a way and to never have your name associated with such a noble deed seems like a waste. And yet, to an azer, this is the highest form of employment. If you could pick the highest role, this is it. See, this is God's thinking. That's why it's called holy. It is other than. It is not like us. In the kingdom of heaven, the highest role is this one. Who gets to choose it? Who gets the highest role in the Godhead? You see, it's the, it's the highest form of employment, the noblest form of living, and the greatest expenditure of life. Could I do it? Could I do it, says the Holy Spirit? Could I be the man in the water? Introducing Ellie Azer. You know, there's a character in the Bible that is named after this exact uh, word. Genesis 15. After these things, the word of the Lord came unto Abram in a vision. By the way, do you guys know who Abram is? It's the same guy as Abraham. This was his previous name, and God named him Abraham. So he came to him in a vision, and saying, Fear not, Abraham. I am thy shield and thy exceeding great reward. And Abram said, Lord God, what wilt thou give me, seeing I go childless? He doesn't have a son. So this is way back in the day. We're going back in time here. And Abraham doesn't have a son and he says, and the steward of my house is this Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, behold, to me thou hast given no seed, and lo, one born in my house is mine heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came unto him, saying, this shall not be thine heir, but he that shall come forth out of thine own bowels shall be thine heir. And he brought him forth abroad and said, look now toward heaven and tell the stars if thou be able to number them. And he said unto him, so shall thy seed be. And he believed in the Lord and he counted it to him for righteousness. This is actually a picture of the gospel in the Old Testament. This is one of the most important passages, the Abrahamic covenant right here. And in this passage is a little ditty that most of us miss. There is a steward in Abram's house that is heir. Meshech is the Hebrew term. He is the heir of the possession. He is the rightful one in line to receive everything of Abraham's. And yet God intervenes and says he will not be the Meshach. He will not be the one to inherit. But one born of your own seed will. And his name is Isaac, who's a picture of Jesus. Jesus will be the Meshach. However, that steward still exists. And that's who we're going to see years later and we actually find out his name here, but it's hidden. He's never mentioned again by name. His name is from this point forward hidden. But what is his name? Eliezer. What do we know about this guy named Eliezer? He was born in the house of Abraham. He was a steward of the house of Abraham. He was Meshech to the house of Abraham. Meshech, here's the definition. Meshech meant the son of the possession. Possessor of the house. The heir to acquire. The one to inherit. The one to whom it belongs. The steward of the house. All of it belongs to him. And yet, could you imagine what this would be like for Eliezer? To diminish and to take a lower position and to serve the son? It was him. It was his. It was his right to have it. Who is this intruder? That's the exact opposite you'll see from this man throughout his entire life. 
His life is dedicated to serve the son of the possession, the rightful heir. He willingly decreases to increase the picture of the son. After, and after this verse, his name is never mentioned again. Eliezer, you know what it means? God and helper. So, God is the helper. Listen to this. God is the servant. That's what this name means. This man's life revealed something. What did it reveal? That God is the servant. Do you accept the fact that God is the servant? No, I know he rescued me, but I don't like the fact of him getting in the water and pushing me up and literally laying down his own life in order to do it. That's the picture of the cross. It's the picture of Jesus Christ. He literally went into the water to push us out. He died. He, he sacrificed everything to serve us. And then who comes? Who is sent in his name? One who does the exact same for us. The Holy Spirit labors as the Ezer, as the Eliezer, proving to us that God is the helper, that God is the servant. And I will pray the Father, says Jesus, and he will give you another helper, that he may abide with you forever. Okay, now we're really back to our story. The tale of the unknown soldier. Now, I cut this down quite a bit because it's a long tale in Genesis 24. And Abraham was old and well stricken in age, and the Lord had blessed Abraham in all things. And Abraham said unto his eldest servant of his house. Who's that? The eldest servant of his house that ruled over all that he had. You see, this man does not have a diminished position. He actually has authority over the entire house of Abraham and Isaac. Isn't that an amazing thought? You don't even know who he is. Most of us have never even thought about him in our entire life, and yet he rules over the house of Abraham and Isaac. He has access to everything. Thou shalt go unto my country and to my kindred and take a wife unto my son Isaac. So that's what Abraham asked him to do. And the servant put his hand under the thigh of Abraham, his master, and swore to him concerning that matter. And the servant took ten camels of the camels of his master and departed. Listen to this line. For all the goods of his master were in his hand. The one who labors on our behalf has access to everything needed to accomplish the task. Oh, I need ten camels. You have them. You see, you're the steward of the house. You have access to all of it, old servant. Take what you need. He doesn't even need to request of Abraham. He has it. He has all that Abraham has. He has all that Isaac has at his disposal to accomplish all that is needed in the commitment that he's made unto his master. And Rebecca arose. Now, I've skipped a lot. I mean, we're a huge, long journey. And, I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a difficult journey. He shows up in, in this little town, and he sits down. And I don't know if you remember the story, but uh, the servant says, uh, may God show favor and may he lead that the woman that uh, offers water to my camels, may she be the one that is the wife of Isaac. I mean, it's a pretty audacious prayer. I mean, after all the long journey, he sits down. This girl, even while he's praying, walks up. And Rebecca arose and her damsels, and they rode up. Oh, I skipped the whole story. I didn't just skip that. I skipped the whole story. So, yeah, I'm trying to cut this short. So, yes, it turns out to be Rebecca that comes, offers water, and all oh, the story unfolds. It's beautiful. It's quite something. Never in the entire story do they mention the old servant's name. However, if you read the story, you'll see him referred to all throughout because he's the main character in the entire story. And the, servant, the old servant said, the man said this. The servant said this. They never mention his name. It's like he's deliberately hidden in front of us, and we don't notice him. 
Purposeful, though. So now here we have Rebecca literally choosing to leave her household, to leave all the comforts, and to go with this servant. She has been wooed. It's the best way of saying it. And Rebecca arose and her damsels, and they rode upon the camels. Who supplied the camels? Well, the Holy Spirit brought them, or the Eliezer brought them. You see, everything has been supplied for the journey. And is this servant going to take her partway? No, he's going to take her all the way home. You see, the servant is entrusted with the bride to take her all the way. He is going to pero fareo. He is going to actively bring her all the way unto the full revelation of the son. And Rebecca rose in her damsels, and they rode upon the camels and followed the man. That's just what he's called, the man. And the servant took Rebecca and went his way. This is a great part. Now, could you imagine what they talk about on the, on the journey? What are they talking about? Could you imagine what the servant is saying? He's speaking of the virtues of Isaac and of Abraham. Oh, you're going to love it there. Isaac is such a man. And then Rebecca says, tell me more. Rebecca is in love before she even arrives and has ever witnessed him with her own eyes. She is in love. How have you fallen in love with Jesus Christ? A man you have never seen. And yet, though you have never seen him, you've never put your fingers in his nail wounds and said, that nail wound was for me. Yet, in a sense, you have put your finger in his nail wounds. How? The Holy Spirit has done something in you to awaken you and to ready you for such a day. And so, you know, what if Rebecca, halfway along the journey, said, you know what? I think I'm going to, you know, thank you, old servant, for getting me started, but I'm going to sort of veer off this way. I think I feel like Isaac's going to be this direction. You know, if she stops heeding the old servant, at any point in time, she will not reach the destination. The secret for Rebecca is to heed implicitly what the old servant tells her. He's the one that knows how to get her home. He was sent from that home, and he knows how to bring her back to it. She doesn't. She is ignorant of these things. She must depend wholly and completely upon the old servant's leadership. And if she does, she will be brought into the arms of Isaac. And Isaac came from the way of the well, Lahorai, and he, for he dwelt in the south country. And Isaac went out to meditate in the field at the evening tide. And he lifted up his eyes and saw, and behold, the camels were coming. See, some of the girls are like, oh. And Rebecca lifted up her eyes, and when she saw Isaac, here, here's, here's my mental picture. She sees Isaac from a distance, and she turns to the old servant, and the old, the old servant smiles and says, that's him. That's the master. Without maybe even a thank you, she jumps off the camel. She's come for a very specific purpose. And that's not just to give hugs and kisses to the old servant. But the old servant doesn't mind. Go. Go. I brought you here so that you could go to him. And when she saw Isaac, she lighted off the cam camel. For she had said unto the servant, What man is that that walketh in the field to meet us? And the servant had said, It is my master. Therefore she took a veil and covered herself. And the servant told Isaac all things that he had done. And Isaac brought her into her, his mother Sarah's tent and took Rebekah. And she became his wife. And he loved her. And Isaac was comforted after his mother's death. Becoming servants, restrained into the glory, success, and benefit of another. 
Are you willing to become a servant, forsake your name, and to become one that is hidden in the water? It's a very difficult thing. I mean, especially we're Americans, most of us in here, and we have an instinct for self-promotion, to be known, to be appreciated, to be understood. Our legacy is very, very important to us. But would you be willing for your legacy to be blended with the legacy of the Holy Spirit? The one that maybe we, we only saw the arms pushing us out of the water. Oh, we're grateful. But maybe we never got a picture of his face. Maybe we never got a hold of his full name. You see, our job is to lead people to Jesus, not to ourselves. The Jesus model, for the glory of the Father, saying only what the Father says and doing only what the Father is doing. This is how Jesus lived. It's the model of humility. It's the model of the Holy Spirit in the name of the Father, dwelling inside of Jesus, doing the works of the Father. And then we see the Spirit model, for the glory of Jesus Christ, saying only what Jesus, the Word of God, is saying, and doing only that which Jesus, the Word of God, is doing. Jesus only does that which the Father is doing. He only says that which the Father is saying. The Spirit only does that which Jesus is doing. He only speaks that which Jesus is speaking. And how about us, Rebecca, the bride, the church of Jesus Christ? It's for the glory of Jesus Christ, wholly given to the old servant, saying only what the Spirit is saying and doing only what the, that which the Spirit is doing. And in doing so, we will be brought to Jesus. And in seeing Jesus in all his glory, we'll be seeing the glory of the Father and truly know him. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. You see, when we're put into Christ, we're not just put into Christ, but we're actually brought unto the Father. But we're not just brought unto the Father, we're actually brought unto the Holy Spirit. You see, this is Jesus' command. Baptize them. Declare over them that they have been brought home. The three rescuers have done it. There, he is in the safe. She is in the safe confines of the Godhead. They're secure. The Godhead is one, and now we are one with the Godhead. Go therefore, and plero foreo. You are supposed to go. Go into all the nations and bring this work to completion. You see, the Spirit of God is about something. Jesus has done a work, but we must go and make disciples of all nations. We must do the work of the Spirit to make Jesus Christ known, to bring completely to an end without stopping short but completing a long journey. Do we have a journey in front of us that we are not supposed to grow tired and weary in? The glory of Jesus Christ is hanging in the ascendant. The bride must be brought home. To fully show something without any remaining hindrance to sight. Is the glory of God obscured in our age and generation? Yes. The Holy Spirit is laboring to pull back the curtain. And guess who he uses as his body to do it? He's needing a body. The Holy Spirit, the pneuma, the breath of God is saying, if I have a body, I can do this work. To fully convince someone, to make one certain, to persuade one to a right conclusion. You know what our job is? To do the work of the Holy Spirit and to convince a lost and dying world that doubts in the reality of the work of Jesus. Conclusion. Plato Ferreo. Do it. Go and do the work of the Holy Spirit. Heed the Holy Spirit. Yield to the Holy Spirit. Let the Holy Spirit have you and do his work in you. Heed the old servant and do what he does. Speak what he speaks and work exactly as he works. For the son's bride must hear of his virtue, of his excellence, of his ability to save. Go! Go and play Rofareo. Do as the old servant does and be single-minded in bringing everyone you meet at the watering hole to Jesus Christ. 
Thank you so much for listening to part one of this two-part message by Pastor Eric Ludi, pastor at the Church of Ellerslie in Windsor, Colorado. Please feel free to make copies of this message, but do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without express written permission. If you have any questions, comments, or just need more information about Ellerslie, please visit our website at www.ellerslie.com. Again, that website is www.ellerslie.com. For Ellerslie Mission Society, this is Ben Zorns cheering you on as Christ cultivates His set-apart life within you.